previously on Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. You know, I know I know our law enforcement is diligently working and, and these things eventually work out. There's more to this case I can't tell you than I could possibly even begin to tell you. Have you come to terms that Jalik is probably dead? Yes, yes. I feel that he was killed uh, on November 1st, 2007. Jalik Rainwalker vanished in 2007 in upstate New York. He was 12 years old. His disappearance hit the 15-year mark in November of 2022. Investigators have treated it as a probable homicide for 10 years now. They say the case is far from cold. If you listen to our first seven episodes, you will know, and spoiler alert if you didn't, we did not solve the mystery of what happened to Jalik Rainwalker. But as often is the case with unsolved true crime, there's more of the story to tell. And we are here for it. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Libertor. This is Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. Episode 8, Nobody. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. If you remember back a few episodes, we spent a lot of time in a place called Washington County. That's in upstate New York, at the base of the Adirondack State Park, about 40 minutes north of Albany. The eastern side of Washington County forms the state's border with Vermont. And we spent so much time there because it's where Jalik was allegedly last seen. His adoptive father, Stephen Kerr, was the last person to see him. Stephen Kerr told police that he and Jalik spent the night of November 1st, 2007, alone at a family member's house in the village of Greenwich. He reported his son missing the next morning. He told law enforcement and the media at the time that he firmly believed Jalik ran away. Stephen Kerr and his wife, Jocelyn McDonald, told police that they had been in the process of trying to reverse Jalik's adoption when he disappeared. They said his behavioral issues, stemming from reactive attachment disorder, were too much for them to handle. I've never met such a pair of parents that refuse to cooperate with law enforcement. That's former Greenwich Police Chief George Bell talking about Stephen and Jocelyn on an episode of Find Our Missing from 2012. 
Stephen and Jocelyn stopped cooperating with the investigation within two weeks of the disappearance. They packed up their family and moved to Vermont four months later. And they've refused to talk about Jalik publicly since then. Police consider Stephen Kerr a person of interest in the case. They have since early 2008, a few months after Jalik's disappearance. That doesn't mean anything legally, though. Stephen Kerr has never been charged with any crimes in connection to his son. Stephen Kerr refused to talk to us for this podcast. So did Jocelyn McDonald. But the last two district attorneys of Washington County did speak to us. Republican Tony Jordan and Democrat Kevin Courtright are political polar opposites. Courtright was DA when Jalik disappeared. Jordan defeated him in 2013. Neither of them ever attempted to bring a case against anyone in relation to Jalik's disappearance. But they also agree, at least from what they both told us a few months ago, that prosecuting a case is not out of the question. If I had won my re-election, it's a case I would have looked at strongly to take the grand jury possibly. When I hear the word cold case, that strikes me as a case where every last bit of evidence has been collected and analyzed and there's just not anything happening with the case anymore, so it sits dormant. Um, here, you know, it is an ongoing active investigation when leads come in and, and leads do come in. Before we get to a potential prosecution, let's do a little more debriefing on what we learned in our reporting thus far. Wendy Libertor and I sat down with our editor, Lauren Stanforth, to talk it through. Well, here we are, seven episodes of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, are out there. You can you can binge listen it now. We told what we thought was a pretty complete story, but as always with stories like this, there's there tends to be more to tell afterwards. So here we are again, kind of gathered. Let's take a look back at that seven episode series. And I'm gonna throw it over to our intrepid editor, Lauren Stanforth, who helped guide us through this process of making this podcast, which took, you know, the better part of a year. Well, I'm so happy to be with you, Jess and Wendy, because I'm really proud of the work you ended up doing. We could not have done it without you. I forgot to add that at the beginning. You are a vital part of this podcast. First of all, it was Lauren's idea to do this. And we, Jess and I, would have never done it without you, Lauren. Me thinking of something takes one minute. So no credit due. When we talk about all the work you guys did on the series, you know, the question to Wendy... People who read and listened to everything, they know that you live in Greenwich and your husband participated in searches for Julie when he disappeared. But at the same time, in all this reporting you're doing, I mean, how much did you learn that you didn't that you didn't know, even though you had that? I mean, quite a bit, although I followed it intensely at the moment because it's Greenwich. You know, and uh, I don't think you could have escaped it either if you wanted to at the time. Right. It was just everywhere. Right. It was the talk of the town and beyond. And it remains to be so, you know, it 
it certainly waned. You know, it's at top of mind, but it was top of mind for a long time. When we had talked to people in the town, one of the things that that struck me most was that all you had to say was his name and instantly you would see people's brains just go back to like, clearly they had thought about this a lot. Clearly they had, you know, they knew about the story. Like just it was an instant recollection. People didn't have to say, hmm, Jalik, hmm, that name sounds familiar. It was instant recognition. Yeah. And Jess, how did you feel? You're, I mean, you're, you're a mom of young kids. I mean, did it impact you as well when you were doing this reporting? A hundred percent. I mean, just by way of background, I had never been to Greenwich. I'd never heard of the story until I started at the Times Union, which I'm eternally ashamed about because this is something I should have known about. But in my experience as as a journalist and covering stories like these, usually I can compartmentalize a little bit, you know, like, OK, I can push back and say this is this is work and here's my life. And, you know, I can compartmentalize. But with this one, because of the nature of the story, because maybe my life has changed a bit now, I'm a mom, like it was harder to separate myself emotionally from it. And, you know, it just kind of was something that I had to deal with as we as we went through this whole process was was kind of being like, okay, this is this is starting to affect me outside of work now, just the things that I'm thinking about it. And you spent so much time doing it. I mean, we it was months and months and months and months. So it was repeated the thoughts of what might have happened or, you know, people's comments about it just kept flooding back. You know, we couldn't get away from it. And at the same time, you know, the way to kind of, at least in my mind, is to to sort of fight that existential whatever that you develop over a story is to kind of just realize like this story needs to be told right you know something needs somebody needs to find out what happened to this kid whatever it was so that's kind of how you pull yourself back from the abyss exactly over the months since uh you know 11 months ago what has been the biggest challenges with getting this project published probably the most challenging was trying to get Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn to speak with us. I mean, we tried all, all different things, you know, the letters, the phone calls. It's been 15 years. And I thought maybe it's been 15 years. So it would be easier to get people to speak to us. And you're saying, yeah, I mean, still, it, it was it could be very difficult. People on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, to borrow a phrase from political reporting, people who, you know, were very supportive of Stephen Carr and his family and, you know, ardently believed that he had nothing to do with it. And then people on the other side, more than one person in the podcast wanted to be anonymous. So that was um, another hill to to kind of climb. You know, this case was particularly tricky. I mean, not only for journalists, but I'm sure for any police investigator doing it. The fact that so much time has passed, plus the fact that a person of interest was named in the case, Jalik's adoptive father, Stephen Kerr. Uh, did you worry that people's recollections when you were interviewing them would be colored by the fact that Kerr was named a person of interest? Because, you know, as as you guys have covered, a person of interest has no legal weight. It has no, it's not a criminal charge. It does not imply that a person is guilty of anything. So did you worry that that was coloring people's memories when you're asking them questions? Not really, no. I mean, people who wanted to talk about it and had memories, had pretty vivid memories. And um, I don't think 
whatever the police said about Stephen Kerr as a person of interest had any influence whatsoever on what these people felt, saw. You know, he wasn't named a person of interest for quite some time. And, uh, you know, the scuttlebutt in Greenwich, people thought he had something to do with it only because he was the last person to see Jalik. He wouldn't go on searches. And he was saying some... He had some crazy theories that people didn't believe. So long before Chief Bell ever came public with that, I mean, it was almost instantaneous here in the community that uh, they felt Stephen was hiding something. Whether or not that's true or not, we don't know. I also think that in the, the folks that we kind of talked to outside of the Greenwich community, I mean, you know, just kind of even talking about it, you know, with friends or, or whomever outside the Greenwich community, like, I think maybe in a way the person of interest designation did color some of their recollections of the case, like people down in Albany or people down, you know, in Schenectady or whatever. And you ask him if you remember the Jaleek Rainwalker case and they're like, oh, yeah, isn't that the, the case of the kid whose dad killed him? That kind of thing, I think, probably colored a lot of recollections region wide. Green- Greenwich in, in the community, I think, was a different a different story. All I'm saying is we followed every little angle, every little rumor and, you know, a lot of them were dead ends. I mean, but we had a lot of conversations that didn't go anywhere because they were nothing. Um, a lot of people saying like, well, I heard this happened. And then it's like, OK, well, the firsthand source who told you that is not willing to talk to us or is no longer alive or it is completely impossible to confirm this fact. There was a lot of that, which is just yeah, very frustrating. Right. And we did our due diligence and track down every crazy thing that we possibly could have because Greenwich is a small community and people gossip like crazy. So, you know, you needed to, we needed to find out whether there was any truth to a lot of these things. I was so hoping that you would shake loose sources who were saying things publicly for the first time. It would assist the investigation. Did that end up shaking out like that at all? Do you think you teased out any information that would help police? I remember back in July, as most people uh, living in the capital region and paying attention to current events, uh, there was suddenly a search for Jalik after a decade, five years, something like that. A significant amount of time. This was the first update in the case in a long time. And it just so happened to be the day after we connected with Washington County DA Tony Jordan. Now, I'm not saying that's connected, but it certainly gave us hope that perhaps if we continued with this podcast and put it out there, that that it would have the power to move the case forward in some way, or at least, you know, get something, shake a little something loose that might, you know, be something that we could explore further. Yes. Yeah, Barbara really talked about that with me as well, about, you know, who tipped them off. I mean, the police said it was a legitimate tip. I wish I knew who that person was and could talk to them. But yeah, there was other things we didn't include, for example, things that Barbara really and the cold case students at the College of St. Rose said they found uh, that were found in Troy and collected as evidence. Um, We didn't include that as well because we weren't able to get it uh, verified from state police. Yeah, there was a lot of things they said, oh, yeah, well, we can't really talk about that. 
Because that right. would, you know, jeopardize the case that they are were building. Yes, it was a lot of that. A lot of that. Including with the FBI. Do you think this case will ever be solved? Do you think, first of all, this physical body will ever be found? Or do you think anyone will ever be charged? I think it'll be solved, but it's going to be a long time. So I agree with you that I feel like someday the truth will come out. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. As we mentioned earlier in this episode and in this series, law enforcement has consistently said to us that the case is still very active, even after 15 years. But still, they've never made an arrest, nor have they ever named a single suspect. Retired New York State Police investigator Tom Aiken was not shy with his feelings about the case when we talked to him last year. I have said all along, this is a very prosecutable and a winnable case. No slam dunk in any case we do. And a bodiless prosecution has its own issues and difficulties to overcome. Again, it's worth noting that in 15 years, neither of the Washington County DAs ever even tried to bring a case. But let's hone in on one specific term here that Tom Aiken just mentioned, bodiless prosecution, or a no-body case. That means trying to convict someone of murder without the most direct and concrete proof that the murder even happened in the first place. How do you prove murder when no one ever found a physical body? It's extremely difficult to do and extremely rare, but also very possible. Can you um, just say your, your name just so we have the correct pronunciation? Sure, it's Tad Tobias. And your title, like how you'd like to be identified? The Nobody Guy. The Nobody Guy. That's Tad Tobias. For more than a decade in the 1990s and early 2000s, DeBias was an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. He prosecuted homicide cases in the district. The violent crime rate in D.C. was way up at the time, so there were a lot of cases. Toward the end of his stint there, a most intriguing one landed in his lap. And a colleague of mine gave me what was then a missing persons case that we believed to be a murder case. 
The more I dug into the case, I realized there were a lot of challenges to doing this type of a case. And I also discovered there had only ever been one other nobody prosecution in the history of Washington, D.C. Not long after, DeBias got a conviction in that case. It became the second ever no-body prosecution in D.C. history. By then, DeBias was hooked on the challenge. He started researching no-body cases around the country. And I decided there was really no central location where all the information about no-body murders was collected. So I anonymously started a website because I didn't want to have to jump through a bunch of uh, Department of Justice hoops to get permission to do it. So I anonymously did a website um, tracking the number of cases I created, just a very simple table that I have to this day. There's a spreadsheet on his website. Go check it out. And because I was anonymous, I just dubbed myself the nobody guy, so I wouldn't have to use my real name. Tobias left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2007. He decided to go public as the nobody guy. He started writing about nobody cases on his website and on social media. And what I discovered was there was a tremendous amount of interest in the law enforcement field about these cases. And I started getting calls from police and prosecutors asking me, how did you successfully prosecute your case? Can you tell us about these other cases on your table? Can you tell us more about them and how to do it? So I started um, consulting and teaching and ultimately wrote a book back in 2014 um, on how to um, prosecute, investigate and uh, win at trial, nobody murder cases. And since then, I've probably consulted on about 45 different cases throughout the country. Um, not all of them have resulted in arrests. Not all of them have been successful convictions. But I think in each of those cases, we've kind of moved the ball forward a little bit um, and certainly have gotten a good number of convictions in those cases. Tobias actually just released an updated version of his book that was late last year. And I heard about him through another podcast about a missing person across the country. Wendy and I were deep into reporting on Jalik's disappearance when Tad's name and expertise caught my ear. We wondered, had he ever heard of Jalik Rainwalker? Turns out he had. But he says he has not been involved in the case in any way. So he agreed to talk to us for the podcast just about the nature of nobody cases. There's speculation that the boy is probably dead. But of course, nobody has ever been found. There's no crime scene. And I know that police have been frustrated for a long time. How difficult is this to convict a suspect without a body? Any no-body case is going to be a very difficult case. Um, first, because the first challenge for police and prosecutors is to prove that the person is actually dead, which, of course, you don't have to do in a typical homicide case. You have the body, a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner comes in and says, yes, I examined the body, the person was dead. In a no-body case, of course, you don't have that. So it's particularly a challenge to prove someone is dead and in this case in particular, I think because it's a 12-year-old boy, that presents some 
pretty significant challenges because a 12-year-old boy is just about at that age where you could believe that they walked away on their own, but not so old that they would have left a lot of uh, tracks behind. He may not have had a cell phone. He may not be appearing on closed circuit TVs. He's clearly not using credit cards and some of the things adults do that leave tracks behind. And when you leave those tracks behind and they suddenly stop, it's a lot easier to believe that someone is dead, not just missing. And that's a particular challenge here. Now, I will say most nobody murder cases are indeed um, circumstantial evidence cases. That is, it's the rare nobody murder case where someone comes forward and says, oh, yes, I saw Tad kill this person and then dispose of the body. Most of the time, what happens is you rely on this type of circumstantial evidence, such as, though, a crime scene, blood, DNA, hair, fiber, fingerprints. That's the type of circumstantial evidence you typically have in a successful nobody murder case. So tell me, what is the main thing investigators and prosecutors need to do to win a case like this? So I don't know, Wendy, if I can point to one thing. What I tell my uh, folks is, number one, even though I've spent the last 15 years talking about no-body murder cases, you're always better if you have a body. So the first thing you need to do is to still continue to look for a body. As time goes on, that obviously gets tougher. And in a case like this, where we're now, what, 15 years out from when Jalik went missing, it's highly unlikely you're going to find a body, even in a somewhat colder climate such as upstate New York, it's still unlikely you're going to find a body unless you find clothes or something like that. So I wouldn't encourage them to spend a lot of time looking for the body, but still you have to always have that in the forefront of your mind. And then most no-body murder cases are really made through one of three what I call quantums or quality type of evidence. And that is the first and the best is forensic evidence. And that can be some of the things I mentioned earlier. Blood, um, some type of body fluid left behind, hair, trace evidence, fingerprints, and it can be technological evidence such as cell phone records, text messages, something you can point a jury to that's you know immutable, unchangeable, and people are going to believe. So some type of forensic evidence is, is kind of thing number one that you're looking for. Thing number two is confession to friends and family. You often have defendants who tell people about what they did, which of course seems counterintuitive because who would admit to actually murdering someone? But sometimes you have people who brag about it. Sometimes you have people who feel guilty about it. Um, sometimes you have a power dynamic where um, perhaps a husband killed his wife or a boyfriend killed a girlfriend, and he then talks about it to the next wife or to the next girlfriend. And then the third type of most common quantum of evidence is confession to police where you have someone who ultimately says to the police, this is this is what happened, this is what I did. And in most nobody murder cases, the ideal case, the case that I actually tried, had all three of those things. You certainly want to try and have at least one of those three things. If you don't, you can still make a case, but it becomes significantly tougher to make a case when you don't have one of those three quantums of evidence. Well, it seems like the first one, the forensic evidence, that one seems like it might be a little difficult. Perhaps the person told someone about 
That's a possibility, I guess. That's one of the things that's a possibility, particularly as time goes on. You know, people tend to get sloppier with what they talk about. They can slip up. So I would say in this case, given from what I know about the case, and again, I only know what I read in the media. I don't have any inside knowledge about the case, or I wouldn't, you know, be talking to all of you if I knew from talking to the police anything. But what I know about the case does not seem to present very much forensic evidence or very much hope of presenting forensic evidence. So you have to focus then on, well, can I get statements? Am I going to find someone who knows something? So you do probably have to focus on who else can I talk to? What else can I do? So as an investigator, what advice would you give police and prosecutors to move the needle forward? The way I work and the way I've done all the 45 cases that I've worked on without exception is I get the complete police file. I get everything that the police know and everything that the prosecutors know. And I go over the file very extensively. It can take me many months. And then I talk about what they can do, what other investigative steps they can take, and what are some of the common features of nobody murder cases that they should be looking for. And one example I can give, because I know there's some evidence of this in this case, is any lies that a suspect tells are very damning. What's interesting and what I've learned in my time, both as a prosecutor and in consulting on these cases, is police and prosecutors are very used to people lying to them. It's something that happens every day, and it's not shocking to us. We understand why people might lie, because that's a lot of what the job of being a prosecutor is, is listening to these people tell you lies. But when you present those lies to jurors who are not used to hearing that day in and day out, it actually is more damning, because most people, putting away you know, my lawyer hat, most lay people will say, why would somebody lie about something so important and so critical unless they had something to hide about it? And I think sometimes as law enforcement, we get jaded about it. We hear so many lies and we think, eh, that's not a big deal. I understand people lie all the time. But what you have to understand and what I spend a lot of time telling investigators is list all those lies, list all of those provable lies so that when it comes time to be in front of a jury, you can point to them and to say, ladies and gentlemen, here's all the lies our defendant told. Why would this defendant tell those lies unless he had something to hide? And I think that's something as investigators, we sometimes overlook and don't see the power in it that actually exists before a jury. You, you can't quite answer this, obviously, because you, you said before that, you know, you haven't seen everything related to the case. But can you say whether or not maybe you would be surprised either way, you know, if this case were suddenly able to be prosecuted and there's a conclusion or there isn't? Would you be surprised either way? I uh, will say this. I would not be surprised if this case can be brought to conclusion. And I say that not based on anything secret or any evidence that I know. It's because I have spent the last 15 years helping detectives do that work in a very small way. The work is done by the detectives and the investigator, and I have no reason to doubt that there are very dedicated detectives working on this case. 
And there's a lot of creative methods out there. There's a lot of clever things um, that are happening um, in the forensic field. There are a lot of clever things that detectives have done over the years, many of which are examples in my book. So would I be surprised if this case was brought to a conclusion? No, I would not. And that's my hope. where we're going to leave it, for now. There have been no public updates on the investigation into Jalik's disappearance since we released the first seven episodes of this podcast starting in January. But if and when anything develops, you can be sure we will be back with another bonus episode of Rainwalker, The Lost Boy. If you have information on the disappearance of Jalik Rainwalker, the New York State Police are urging you to call 518-692-9332. You can also email tips to nysvicap at troopers.ny.gov. Rainwalker, The Lost Boy is a Times Union podcast. The series was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. Special thanks to Dan Higgins. Archival report footage came from local stations CBS 6, News Channel 13, and News 10, and from Find Our Missing. Our theme song is As You Make the Bed by Amos Noah.